0: Members of the UNT Alumni Association can join OLLI at UNT for just $85 a year. Our Fall 2021 semester is now underway. Learn something new in one of our non-credit courses, attend special events, and enjoy great member benefits. For more information, contact OLLI at UNT.edu. You're listening to the OLLI at UNT Alumni Spotlight Series, presented by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at UNT and the UNT Alumni Association. The Alumni Association is open to all friends of UNT who are interested in serving, supporting, and celebrating the university. To learn more, visit untalumni.com. To learn more about OLLI at UNT, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member Susan Supack.
1: This is Susan Supack speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. In partnership with the UNT Alumni Association, the Ollie at UNT podcast presents the Alumni Spotlight Series featuring exceptional alumni. This month's spotlight falls on Mr. Bob Garza. Bob is a Vietnam War veteran. Thank you for your service, Bob. Having served four years in the Air Force following his military service, he went on to computer programming classes at Corpus Christi and to the business administration department at UNT. He is retired as AT&T's Governmental Relations Director in External Affairs after 36 years of service. Bob is now an active community volunteer with a passion for supporting others. He works with the UNT Multicultural Center and UNT Alumni Association to recruit, retain, and build leadership among the Latinx-Hispanic student and alumni population. He serves on the UNT Latinx Advisory Council and will serve as president on the Latinx Alumni Network chapter with the UNT Alumni Association. Bob and his wife Emily are life members of the UNT Alumni Association and strong supporters of the G. Brent Ryan College of Business and UNT Athletics. Welcome Bob, wow, you're a busy guy.
2: Well, thank you. Well, I, I try to keep myself busy. I tell my wife I, I get a little dangerous when I'm idle. <laughs> so, <yeah.
1: laughs> well, lucky for us then.
2: <laughs>
1: uh-huh. I have to say that having read your background, you are an excellent role model. As I understand it, getting a college degree was not a given in your family, was it?
2: Not by a long shot, Susan. And I got to tell you, I was born in the River End Valley down in South Texas, I lived in a very poor neighborhood and most of the families that lived in my colonia in my neighborhood were very poor and they were primarily field laborers and then by the age of 10 I was uh, I had lived in five different households and most of the kids in my neighborhood were dropouts high school or not even at high school most of them didn't reach middle school and I was holding on but having a tough time about staying in school my my mother had died when I was 5 years old so I lived with my great-grandmother and, and a great-aunt and great-uncle until the age of 12. At that time, my mother's sister knew what I was going through, and she came and asked me to come live with her, which is a town about 35 miles away. She promised to help me through high school, and then after that I would be on my own. So to me, just to not worry about having to be pulled from school and go to work in the fields and, and then come back and try to catch up was was uh, just uh, a godsend, be able to just concentrate on school. I went on to play sports and all of that that I would have never been able to do otherwise. So with all of that, uh, I just knew that college was just a very unlikely possibility.
1: It's incredible the difference, the support of one or two people can be for a person. You had a family member that stepped up and helped you. Do you credit the time that you spent with the Air Force in helping you to have the confidence and the drive to go on to continue education, or is that something that you always had within you?
2: Well, it was something that I knew was was needing to happen in my life. I just couldn't define it. I didn't want to be a field laborer the rest of my life, and so Once I graduated from high school, my wife and I, we met in high school and we we were married and we both had what we call dead-end jobs, right? Jobs that we were going to hold and never really rise from that position uh, unless we made it happen. So right then and there, I, I knew that I needed to do something and it positioned me and my wife and my future family to do better. So... The Vietnam War was going on very strongly. And because I wasn't going to school, you know, you were required to take at least 12 hours or you were, you know, the military draft was in place. So I got drafted. You know, I thought about that, Susan, and I thought, you know, this may be just my next move. And in actuality, I didn't know it at the time. It was my only move. So I got all excited and I had to go to San Antonio from South Texas for my physical and I thought, well, shouldn't be any problem and you know, no and behold, I didn't pass my physical. I had, had two hernia operations in my high school years and so they the army didn't feel like I would be able to do the job. So I was very, very disappointed. I came home and I talked my two of my high school buddies into going to the Air Force recruiting office and, and applying. So we applied, we passed we were accepted immediately. So there was something that for me later, to uh, I realized what, what a, a, a gift that was, you know, even though I had a very high potential to go to Vietnam for, for service. What happened is while I was in the service in the Air Force, you know, it's just like instantaneously I realized the structure and the command and the, the difference between being a commissioned officer, those college degree folks and the non-commissioned officers. And of course I was a non-commissioned officer. And the difference was included the pay, the living quarters and the lifestyle and, and and a host of other things. But I liked the structure, I liked the the purpose that it gave me, you know, what I was working for. And it actually fast tracked my maturity. You know, I was 21 and so I needed a lot of help. I love the military and I knew right then and there that With all those differences that I saw that I needed to complete my tour of duty and then go and seek somehow some path to get my college degree. And while the Air Force was a clincher for me doing that, the other factor was that I earned the right to get an education through the GI Bill. So it was a no-brainer for me. I credit the Air Force for, on the one hand, identifying that there is a difference in lifestyle and and your future, whether you have a degree or not. And also that there is an opportunity if you do serve as a veteran to take advantage of, uh, you know, the GI Bill. So that turned out to me to be just a gotcha.
1: And you use that to go to, to the technical school at Corpus Christi, right? Where you learned about computers. Is that correct?
2: That's correct, correct. In fact, during my discharge, we were in Kansas. We came back to Texas and we decided to go through Corpus on the way to the valley and stopped and uh, visited with my brother and sister-in-law there. He did really a good job trying to get me to, to stay in Corpus. There was a Naval Air Base there and then and it's still there now. And he thought, well, what if you could get a job here at the Naval Air Base as a veteran? So during the First two weeks, I just, by chance, applied at this technical school. Of course, I, today I call it a fly-by-night, but, you know, back then was my <laughs> lifeline. <laughs> I applied, and I needed $800 to enroll, and so I borrowed it from my aunt again, you know, the, the, yes. the family member that's there for you when you need them. So I applied. I sold shoes during the day at a department store, and I went to school at night. There were 22, and out of the 22, I was the only one that graduated, and it was funny because my instructor at the time, he says, you know, you really have an aptitude for programming. He says, but if you really need uh, or if you want to get a good paying job, you need to get a degree. So that evening I came home and I told my wife, I said, we need to, do, to take the next step. And so my sister and brother-in-law lived here in Denton. And so I told my wife about it and she said, well, you know, you can go to North Texas. We were, we were moved in one, one week and, uh, Is
1: that right? Yeah. Oh, that definitely shows you're a man with drive.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, and a, and a wife that really supported me too. Absolutely. So, so, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So we moved in November of 1970 and through the Christmas holidays and all of that, I managed to get all my paperwork in line and I enrolled in uh, January of 71. I think that was a godsend for me as well the, to be able to do that. Let me see. I I think at the point that I got to UNT, I needed to have a job while going to school. So I worked in Richardson, lived in Denton. So I commuted and was working midnight to eight in the morning. So I get back home to Denton at nine in the morning. I take classes till two in the afternoon, got a few hours sleep, five, six hours. And then I started the cycle all over again.
1: That's amazing.
2: So, yeah. So, so I did that for two plus years. And then it just so happened that North Texas, in their data center, they were looking for a computer attendant. So I applied and I just lucky I, I got the job. And so it made my, my life a little easier at the time. And again, the next step for that was that I walked into an IBM, what they call an IBM shop. It was all IBM equipment. So I learned to operate that. And I also learned to be able to not only work, but go to school and study, because of the, the job that I did allowed that. Upon graduation, I applied at the business administration office. There was, at that time, recruiters that would come on campus, and I just happened to see that uh, Southwestern Bell was coming in to, to uh, interview the next day, mind you. There was a blank space in the sign-up sheet, so I did that, Lo and behold, I got hired. They moved me to Lubbock, Texas, and my wife and I, and we had a child at the time, moved to Lubbock. My first day on the job, I couldn't believe it. I walked in, the data center was a replica of what I had been working on here at North Texas.
1: That's wonderful.
2: So I was on a fast (laughs) track, and it was just like I knew what I was doing. (laughs) And I did. I I was very familiar with all the equipment. From there, I felt that my 36 years at AT AT&T, I had a variety of different jobs, and I did a variety of different things, but technical expertise always seemed to come in and kind of give me a notch, you know, into the job that I was doing. I introduced new things. I basically mechanized certain things that were manual. And and so all of that was a plus for me. And so I look back on where I began with that and Corpus and then UNT and and then AT&T. And it was just, I was just very blessed that North Texas prepared me well. I was able to enjoy a great career.
1: You know what your story makes me think of, Bob, is that all along the way, as you did certain things to support yourself and to be able to go to school, isn't it incredible the way we pick up different jobs or we do different things, and then further on down the road, you realize that at the time, you weren't thinking of it as being a main job. It wasn't, but learning different things along the way pay off so much on down the road. There's not really anything you can do that gives Mm -hmm. you experience that you can't use later. I think that's incredible the way we collect those things along the way.
2: And and you know, you're right. And the incredible thing about, as my wife and I often reflect back on on where we were, oh, in 1970, we both agree that the moves that we made, we didn't have a clue whether we were going to be successful or not. But yet, We did it because that's all we had. And so, you know, and and that's how it works. Sometimes you can lay down a plan on paper, execute it, and doesn't guarantee success, right? So we were just very lucky, very lucky.
1: Yeah, I think it also says there's just some suggestions and times where you just know. You can't put it down in paper. You can't give the pros and the cons. But in your mind, you just know that's a step you have to take, like coming to UNT. That was the step. And you Mm -hmm. did it in a week. (laughs) But that was clear. It's like you just know that's what has to happen. Were there any particular professors or experiences at UNT that inspired you?
2: There was a Steve Gwines, Doctor Gwines in the business department. This is again one of those things that I didn't plan. It just happened and it was a timely timely thing that happened in my favor. But Dr. Goines was introducing some technical courses in the business administration. It was like a degree plan. Ultimately, I ended up getting a management science degree in the School of Business. And so he was very, very instrumental in allowing me to take that next step. He taught me Fortran, COBOL, PO one And once I got through all the core courses, he also helped me with special problem courses to further delve into the three different languages to get really business-like experience. And so I did that and special problems courses allowed me a little bit more flexibility. So I could do the work on, on my own and then I could come back and report to them and we would meet every two or three weeks. And so that also helped tremendously. Just recently, Susan, I was able to speak to Dr. Blind's at that time. Oh,
1: how nice.
2: Forty plus
1: years.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And so he was still teaching. He says, Oh I'm about to retire. And I think (laughs) you know, (laughs) you know, once you're a professor and you love it, you you know, you do it for as long as you can. Yeah. Anyway, I told him my story, but you know, in reality, I don't think he truly understands the impact that he made in my life. And yeah. in my career. So, yeah, yeah. Dr. Gwines is just uh, was a, a savior for me.
1: <laughs> well, that's wonderful. You had a chance to see him again. Yeah. Now you retired as the at and Governmental Relations Director in External Affairs. What did that position entail?
2: Well, it was a hybrid type of job. It was a community relations job. It was also a governmental affairs job in that I had a a certain area, and I worked here in the the city of Dallas, and so... I was assigned certain areas within the city. As an example, I had several city council members that I was to go-to person for, several trustees that I was to go-to person to. So uh, anything that had to do with our company, our business, that they had a question on, they would come to me, and then I, I was up to me to resolve that. I worked with several superintendents. Michael Miles was here for a while, and then the present superintendent, Michael Linojosa, was here from 05 to 2011. And then he left and came back. So I worked with him and for him for a while as well. And later, I got promoted into the true governmental affairs job. And it kind of dropped off the community relations, although I never, (laughs) you know, I never stopped doing that officially. But this new job gave me the opportunity to work Statewide, with municipalities and counties and legislators, so I was responsible, and again, the liaison between those entities. Anything having to do with our business, so when anything surfaced, I was a go-to person, and that was probably one of the most satisfying jobs that I had. And you know, ultimately, it was at the point of my career when I was about to retire. So I I was just so happy that I after 36 years that I was able to look back in my last 15 and say they were the most gratifying. And, you know, I was just, again, I was very lucky.
1: You're a fortunate person. Mm-hmm. As is true with most community leaders and people who are active in their community, I hesitate to even use the word retire when I'm talking to you because uh-huh. I have to say you're anything but retired and I can only imagine that this experience you described when you were working with AT&T must have helped you so much as you went forward in the community after you left AT&T. Mm-hmm. You were elected to the City Council of Carrollton, right?
2: I was. You know, and it's funny again the way things happened but I had just retired and my first and most immediate task was to just relax and take take it easy for a little while and kind of gather my thoughts and, and maybe look at what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And so uh, two weeks later, my phone rings and two of my good friends that were already on city council were screaming at me, says, you've got to run, you've <laughs> yeah. got to run. And I said, oh my gosh. So anyway, long story short, I thought about it, like, contemplated you know yes no and my wife says don't do it and so <laughs> you know i had to i had to go through those issues and so but ultimately i did file the campaign was a little rough in that there were four people running for the same office i won the runoff election and so ultimately got elected as a city council i thought that you know i was going to to be able to Uh, Really contributed and I did, but I found myself quickly understanding in my mind that my job and my role at city council was to help the little guy. You know, that person that doesn't have a voice or doesn't know how to ask for help within the city because it's complex and, and all of that. I think what I did in my six years was to work with those that uh, needed my help. I got a lot of phone calls and they uh, often said, you know, little things like this business uh, at a certain location is not empty in their trash can. So I'd pick up the phone and we'd get it done. Or, you know, there's a sidewalk that's cracked and people are tripping and falling. So I'd make a phone call and I'd get it done. And so that caused me to to be more sought after because, you know, I guess I got the label of being able to get a response and get things done. So uh, I really enjoyed my city council tenure. I I, worked, I uh, was there six years and we were term limited. And so I thought I've done my duty <laughs> and now I'm going to go off and try to uh, enjoy my grandkids. That was a good time in my life though, also the city council job.
1: Well, that is so admirable. We need more people who do look out for the little guy. And I you know for a lot of people, navigating whatever government level, whether it's local, state, federal, it can be such a confusing process. And to have someone that can help to know, who to pick up the phone to call, how to yeah. get something done. i That's such a critical part of community service and community office, because I know there are so many people that really don't even know where to begin. So they don't, yeah. they don't. And I'm sure that once people found out, Hey, there is a real human being I can talk to and I can call this person and he can say, well, this is, this is the next step. So that is really something now, you and your wife, Emily, are avid supporters, as I mentioned in the introduction of the G. Brent Ryan College of Business and the UNT Athletics. In fact, I don't want to go without saying that you received the UNT Alumni Association's Outstanding Alumni Service Award. So congratulations for that. Well, That's, thank you. Yeah, that really speaks to your commitment and service to UNT. So what is it, Bob, that motivates you right now to give so much time and effort and to share your expertise, not only with UNT, but with your community also?
2: Yeah, well, you know, as I mentioned uh, earlier, I, I've i just found that my calling was to be an advocate for those that are most in need. And that's kind of the way I look at my... Uh, motivation to volunteer and help others. And I understand what it feels like to struggle to put food on the table because I was there. There are so many first-generation and low-income students that cannot get help. They don't know how to navigate the system to, to get to the next level and, and the enrollment process, like you said, being so difficult. I think these gifted and talented students just need that break. Someone that could them out of that hole and, and give them a tool that allows them to, to be themselves and be, be uh, successful. And so, as I said, I, you know, I was there at one time. I understand that it's a scary feeling, Susan, mm-hmm. for, for these kiddos. So at this point, uh, myself and several Latinx alumni right now, we're working on identifying and helping those Latinx students and their families overcome those barriers. The situation now is that we are just beginning and we've got a lot to learn and, and, and probably a lot of folks to help. We're pairing, we're getting ready to later this fall or into the spring, get big Latinx community working and bring those that have graduated from our college to come back in and bring their expertise. Uh, they've been through this and now they're professionals and they can help our students. And so that's that's my motivation mm-hmm. I want to be able to help these students like the help that I got when I was coming along and desperately needed it.
1: Well, I think it's clear that what you're talking about not only helps the individuals that really need it, but in turn, you're helping the communities because as these Mm -hmm. people get the help that you give them— they become more successful and more confident and better community members and community leaders themselves. So all of this just affects so many of us. So I really appreciate your efforts. As I described your initiative, Latinx, in the introduction, it was to recruit, retain, and build leadership among the UNT's Hispanic population. Mm -hmm. So you're looking to go out into the community and get more students from different communities? Is that part of it? Or to help those that have already reached out to UNT?
2: It's actually a two-fold process. We are looking to recruit and bring in more Latinx students. One of the things that I did, Susan, when I decided to take this Latinx project on was to do some research before so that I could understand You know, I was a corporate type. I wasn't aware of how an institution, college or university institution, how they go about doing that work. And so I will say this is a very rewarding and exciting process that, you know, and we're just beginning. But three years ago, when I was approached to look at this and perhaps take it on, it started out for me kind of slow because I got I had a lot of things to learn and research in the multicultural center you mentioned earlier, there was a young man there, Damien Torres, that was the director and he helped a lot of these students that were in need and students that were in desperate positions at times and often, Causes them to just drop out and go on about maybe getting a job to help their families or they didn't have enough money to pay for rent. A number of different things. So the Latinx project basically started out with forming a what we call a Latinx advisory council. And, and that incorporated something like 12 or 13 staff members at UNT, all had something to do with recruiting and retaining students, and they were different departments, and so we said, okay, let's get together, because there's some crossovers between departments sometimes, and if you don't speak between departments and find out what's going on or work towards helping that student and do it collaboratively, sometimes you can lose those students because they don't know where to run or where to go. So we did that and we met for about uh, nine months to a year. And then from there, I took over, I guess, the next stage where we created a what I call the leadership group. And these were alumni folks that I went out and I knew and I I brought them in. I said, help me with this. Help me get my arms around this project. And so we spent some time, we, we did that and we kind of laid out a plan and I presented it to the VP of diversity and equity, Joanne Woodard. And I said, this, this is what I see as the plan and how we're going to approach it. And I said, but there's only one catch to this. And she said, what is that? And I said, I have to have top-down commitment. You know, the president and the cabinet members have got to endorse this. Or else it's not going to work, and so she said, "I understand." So she and you know what we got it, and That's once great. we yeah and once we got that commitment from the top down, everybody below them they were understanding that um, you know their boss and their boss's boss and not to be the president was in favor of this, and you know and they were very very helpful. So the twofold is recruiting students. And we have a plan. We haven't put it in place yet. We have a plan that uh, we're going to create a Latinx alumni recruiting network. And we have already identified alumni folks that are in various parts of the, the state. And I was going to say the country. And that's true because we just discovered that there was a, a young lady. There is a young lady out of New Jersey that's joined our team. But I'll tell you about that a little bit later. But this recruiting team is to go to, let's say a San Antonio, because we have a chapter, Alumni Association chapter in San Antonio, in Houston, in Tarrant County, in Fort Worth. And so we go to those folks and say, look, if you have contacts within the education levels, like high school, maybe even middle school, that you can open doors for our recruiting team. Because what I was told, Susan, was that by the recruiting teams is we'll, we'll send a letter to and I'm going to use McAllen High School down in South Texas, that we're coming on this date, and we're going to be there to talk to students and tell them about UNT, it often falls on a counselor. And, you know, they're very busy and they'll they'll send out or maybe they'll put something on the bulletin board. and, And when they get there, they get a handful of students if they're lucky. So they don't get the, their money's worth, the, the return on the investment of going to the Valley. And so what we wanna do is we, we want to we want somebody that knows the superintendent of McAlvin, the superintendent in Harlingen and say, can you help us? Here's what we're doing. Now UNT has dedicated themselves to be a Latinx friendly institution. And we wanna promote that. Uh, we wanna help and not only recruit the student but the family.
1: And what does that mean, being a Latinx-friendly institution?
2: It means that we are going to have an advocacy group like the Latinx Alumni Network. We're going to have an HSI task force that is going to look at retaining that HSI so we can have more funding to provide to students.
1: HSI is what now?
2: It's a Hispanic-serving institution. Ah, Uh, And so those HSIs and They're just a handful in Texas. You have to apply. Well, actually, you have to qualify. And we just qualified in, um, well, it's been a a little over a year ago. The requirements, just basic requirements, Susan, are that the institution has to have at least 25 percent of the undergrads being Hispanic or Latinos. And so, and there's other criteria that you have to meet. And if you don't keep that, uh, if you're not in compliance, then you could lose it. So our job is we don't want to fall below that that you know, requirement and lose that because it would not be good for us. So, so that's part of our job. So we recruit, we retain, and the retainment part is a little bit more difficult because you're now looking at students that are already on campus. You're trying to help them. And not only be successful in, in passing and, you know, making sure they comply with whatever loans that they might have and averages that they'd have to maintain. But if, let's say, and I use this example a lot, I say, let's say a student loses their laptop. And all of a sudden, what do you do? And they don't have money to, to go and purchase another one. So we are now building an emergency fund. We're trying to get all the legal work done through the Latinx Alumni Network to put together an emergency fund for those reasons. And uh, uh, and there's a variety of different reasons why students get into difficulties. And, and like I said, oftentimes they just walk away because they just can't handle it.
1: It's just too hard for them.
2: It it is, And, and I don't know that we can solve all those problems, but we're certainly going to give it a try. We're not going to be able to promise that be there and pay your rent, all of that. Requirements that the student has to have, and especially if they don't have the ability to call mom and dad and say, "I need some money," because more than likely they don't, they they can't get that. So, so that emergency fund is going to be put in place, and we hope that we can build it up such that we can help as many students as we can. And the other side is that we've also already we've already gone through the legal work, and we've already created a scholarship endowment for the Latinx network, and it's a 30000 we have to come up with $30,000 within five years. And, and I got to tell you, Susan, now we've, we've started this in June, I think, and we finished the, the legal work uh, maybe July, and we've already collected, we've already been able to, to accumulate over $8,000
1: Wow, in that's just great. a few
2: months, in just a few months. So that's what we're going to do. You know, we're trying to not only bring students and give them the opportunity to have a good idea of what we offer here at UNT, and it's a lot more than just come see us because we've got a beautiful campus and we're in a small town, and you're you're going to love it. It's going to be. We've got a group of folks here that have gone through UNT, they've graduated, they've gone on, been successful, and they're here to help you if you need some help.
1: I can only imagine how helpful that is, how inspiring that would be to some student who's struggling. Should I even be here? What am I doing here? Do I even deserve to be here? I think a lot of people never think they deserve to be wherever it is that they are. And to have someone like you available to say, hey, I came from the background I came from Mm -hmm. and I know what you're going through and look what we have to help you. I can only imagine how supported that has to be. Do students also have an opportunity to meet with each other?
2: Absolutely. Well, as a matter of fact, I'm glad you asked that question because one of the things I learned when I was going through my exploratory time period to find out, you know, exactly what was going on at UNT in terms of Latino Latinx students was I found that there's like at that time it was like 13 different Latinx organizations. And they each had their own little governmental setup, and they, they had bylaws and, and they all had a cause and they were all working for something. And when I talked to several of them, they, they didn't cross over. And I said, Well, have you ever thought about creating an umbrella organization with an umbrella officer levels and then be able to be a little bit more leveraged that way? And they said, We've tried it, but it just doesn't work. I was told that they also tried to run it up the line to try to maybe get to the president or maybe a a department dean or something. and, And it was just very difficult to do. So, hence my my requirement of of Joanne at the the very beginning, I said, we've got to have top down. And so when we take that and we have taken it to the students and they're a lot more encouraged now that say, you know what, if the cabinet members and, and the president are supportive of this, and and I've got letters from both David Wolf and Development and the president that are advocating this neck. so if they want proof, I can give it to them. So it's been been, uh, just an eye-opener, but the students right now, and they're not organized the way we hope that they will be at some point in time, but we're just now at a point where we're maybe 80% uh, completed in terms of all the legal work, all the organizational structure that we have to do but it's it's a work in progress in in the last 3 months we have raised over $8,000 in the endowment we have a facebook page that we put in 3 months ago and we have almost 200 followers we have recruited close to 25 alumni that we're going to offer a position on what we call the steering committee and we are I think we're at 23 right now and we got some fabulous fabulous very gifted and talented candidates we are we are just uh, extremely excited about what potential we have and where we are and and just what we've done so far in such a short period of time i just i just feel like uh, this is just going to be very successful like somebody said the other day this is something that needed to have happened a long time ago. And so people now are hearing about it and and they're saying, it's about time, where do I, how do I fit in? And so it's been very, very uh, successful and uh, so very encouraged.
1: I can't thank you enough for your expertise, your time that you put into all of this. As I say, I think it's not only... So helpful for the UNT community and for the individuals that you're helping, but for the community at large. We were talking country, so I'll go there for the Uh country. These are the kind of efforts that make a difference. And I thank you very much. And thank you for joining me on the podcast and taking the time to tell us about it. Is there anything else that I haven't asked you about it that you'd like to
2: mention? Just to reiterate that those of us that are on the executive committee and then soon to be steering committee members. We know what our students or potential students are going through, especially now You know, with with the country, the way it's going through the pandemic and so many other things that we're we're just very, very happy to be here. We wanna promote ourselves. We got a marketing department in, in our Latinx alumni network that's going to go through social media and just let everybody know what we're doing. My secret (laughs) uh, ambition on this is that UNT gets notoriety throughout the country about what we're doing for Latinx students.
1: Well, I have no doubt that they will. (laughs) I hope. Thank you again.
2: Thank you, Susan.
1: This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas with Bob Garza. Thanks for listening.
0: The Ollie at UNT podcast is recorded and edited by Susan Supack and produced by me, Jordan Williams. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our previous interviews and subscribe to this podcast in your favorite podcast app. To receive email notifications about each new episode, join our email list at olli.unt.edu slash podcast.